0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at Podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 5th, 2021, and this is show number 852. Before we get the show started, I have an announcement to make. There will not be a live show this next coming Sunday, September 12th. Steve and I are going on a little trip, and we won't be around to do the live show. We're actually taking a trip to Virginia and Maryland and this is a trip we've been planning to do for a very long time, literally years we've been planning to do this and just finally got around to scheduling it and we're going to do it. The first person we're going to go see is uh, Kevin, also known as Big in Virginia. Now, we've known Kevin forever, but we've never met him in real life. Kevin is Steve's wingman. When we're in the live show, in the live chat, Kevin's job is to protect Steve against whatever I say bad about Steve. I don't know why he would think I would ever do that. Kevin is also the, uh, the man who kidnapped my uh, toy... Horse many years ago until uh, I got a new iMac for Steve. So uh, it's about time we finally meet him. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to go to Maryland and we're going to hang out with uh, Chris Ashley, Rod Simmons, and Rob Dunwood of the SMR podcast. Now, we've met Rob at a couple of conferences, and uh, Rod has actually been to our house a few times, and so we know them really well in real life, but in all these years, we have never met Chris Ashley. So we are going to meet Chris Ashley, and he's going to, uh, I think, literally bring out the fatted calf for us. He's going to start barbecuing on Friday for us to eat all day Saturday and Sunday, Uh, anyway, um, we're really excited about the trip, uh, and, uh, just want to let you know why we're going to be gone. And that's going to change the format of next week's show. I didn't want to leave you without a show, but I also won't be around enough to do a lot of content for the show. So next week's show is going to be an interview with Rod and Rob and Chris. And, uh, what I want to talk to these guys about is they live in a very cross-platform world and I want to kind of understand How that works. So they, uh, Rod has, uh, he uses an Android phone and a Mac. Chris uses an iPhone and a Windows machine. And Rob uses Android and a Windows machine. So we've got all three combinations of how these different tools can work together. And I simply don't know how they do things when they have all this different cross-platform stuff. So I think it might be fun. I thought it might be fun to go through and ask them about that. So it won't be a standard format. It might even feel a little chit chat across the pondy, but I think it's going to be really fun. They're great guys. And I think we're going to have a really good time. So the most important thing to know is no live show next week, but there will be a no cast, and I don't know what day the no NoCillaCast is going to come out. Might be on Sunday, but we'll still be on travel. I'm not sure how well that'll work. So it might be Monday night. It might be Tuesday. I'm not really sure. No promises, but whatever it is, it's going to be a great show. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is another installment of Programming by Stealth. And in this episode, Bart talks about something he's been really excited to teach us. He wanted to talk about Chamoa templates. Now, you might remember Chez Moi is the tool that allows us to manage the dot .files, and the configuration files, if you will, and, and use them between different machines and control them, and uh, we've been talking about it for a little while. But this one was about Chez Moi templates, which includes learning functions and arguments, how to declare variables, looping over arrays, and learning the sprig utility functions to extend Chez Moi. I thought he was going to jump out of his chair he was so happy to teach us about pipelines in chemao which are actually a grand way of embedding function statements in a way that's very human readable now this is our penultimate installment on chemao where next time we'll be learning about how to manage our dot files across multiple computers where not everything is the same between computers but much of it is now after that we will be starting up with php And I'm actually going to do something very artificial. I'm not going to do a chit-chat across the pond with anybody else until I can do two episodes in a row with Bart, because that will make him episode 700- of the Chit Chat Across the Pond the day we start on PHP. I know that's artificial, but that's what I'm going to do. Plus, I'm going to be out of town anyway, so it's all going to work out. So uh, look forward to starting PHP. And in the meantime, you can find this episode of Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. or And I should say, you can follow the link in the show notes to Bart's fabulous tutorial. As a beginner developer, I find it very difficult to recommend coding tools to others because I'm worried the more advanced programmers, you know, will kind of make fun of me. They'll say my opinion is wrong because I don't have the right experience, or I'll accidentally step into a religious war like accidentally saying VI is better than Emacs. No one who listens to this show has ever given me a hard time, and in fact, the community has been really supported, uh, supportive as I continue to learn to code but I still worry a little bit about reviewing coding tools because I don't really know what I'm talking about yet. I worried about it when I wanted to do a review of Microsoft's Visual Studio Code, but I mustered up my courage and I did it anyway. It was reasonably well-received if I measure that by the fact that I didn't receive any emails that started with, well, actually, Allison. So one of the things I really dislike in a public speaker is when they make a lot of excuses up front before telling you what they know, and I've just done exactly that. I'd like to tell you about a plugin for Visual Studio Code that I'm finding really useful. But first, let's start with the problem to be solved. As a junior programmer, I struggle with syntax all the time. Imagine you're just learning English and you want to ask for a glass of water, but you don't know whether you should start with the pronoun or the verb first, and is it me or is it I, and do you say water or H2O? You know what you're trying to say, but how do you say it? I'm like that all the time when I'm coding. I'm not too bad at HTML, but in JavaScript I'm often staring at a blank screen trying to do something relatively simple, and I just can't remember how to write it. For example, if I'm referencing an element's ID with jQuery, I know I'm going to need a hash symbol, I know there's quotes around it, and I know I need a dollar somewhere in there, probably up front, but is the hash inside or outside of the quote? Is it inside or outside of the parentheses? I've written this a lot of times in JavaScript, and I feel like I should just know it by now, but I often get it wrong. Another problem to be solved is that a lot of programming is repetitive. Maybe you need to write very similar code for three different circumstances. For example, every time you write an IF statement, you probably want to write an ELSE statement. What if you could have a tool that auto-completed whatever you were trying to write, whether it's a new function or a repetitive task? It's possible that the new plugin called GitHub Copilot for Visual Studio Code might do the trick. GitHub Copilot is a plugin for Microsoft's Visual Studio Code, as I said, and its job is to make code suggestions for you as you type. GitHub Auto, uh, Copilot is an AI tool that was trained using all of the freely licensed open source code on GitHub. Now, this has raised a bit of a controversy about the legality of this approach. If a piece of code under, say, the GNU public license is, is learned by this AI, and then it's offered to me by GitHub Copilot, and then I sell my code... Wouldn't there be a legal problem in there? Well, many open source licenses have legal restrictions on what you can do with the code. But if you want to read more about the controversy surrounding the the methods of Microsoft's GitHub that they use to teach GitHub Copilot, simply search for the tool and you'll find lots of commentary on this controversy. But I'm going to set that aside for now and I'm just going to enjoy the tool. One of the biggest lessons I've learned as a programmer is that real programmers don't just know everything, they know how to search for what they need. If you want to know how to find out whether a button has been clicked using JavaScript, you just search for it and someone has written the code. Might take you a few tries to find the exact code you need, but eventually you'll find something that works or is close enough to be modified for your needs. GitHub Copilot has studied every open source project in GitHub and has found patterns that people follow to write specific functions. If you start writing something similar, it understands from context what you're trying to do, and it'll make suggestions. Now, right now, GitHub Copilot is in technical preview, and they say it works with a broad set of frameworks and languages. They go on to explain that right now it does especially well for Python, JavaScript, TypeScript, Ruby, and Go. Alright, enough talking around GitHub Copilot, let's talk about how it works. I signed up for the technical preview and I was immediately accepted, so I think it's pretty easy to get into it. That gave me the plugin to download and install into VS Code. After that, you just start writing code. So I've been collecting examples over the last few weeks of where GitHub Copilot offered code to me that I found helpful. Let's start by way of example with something super simple in HTML. The first line of an HTML file is always... Uh, less than symbol, exclamation point, doc type, space, HTML, greater than symbol. Okay, you got the two angle brackets on either side, you type that every time. With GitHub Copilot, if I hit enter after writing that, and I just wait a second, and gray, it types in the entire next line, which is always angle bracket, HTML, lang equals en, assuming you're writing in the language English. So if you like what GitHub Copilot typed, You simply hit tab to accept the solution, so it's no longer in gray and it becomes whatever color you're trying to type in. If I hit enter again for a new line, GitHub Copilot will type angle bracket head, which is the next traditional thing you write in all HTML files you put in a head. I decided to just keep pausing and see what GitHub Copilot wanted to type for me next and how long it would go. It gave me all of the classic metadata tags at the top, it threw in a title, it closed the head section, it added a body with a heading and two paragraphs, and closed the rest of the document for me. Now, I've always wanted to have a template to start my HTML files, and GitHub Copilot did a pretty good job of setting it up for me. But let's not pretend that that's brain surgery or anything. My next real-world example was really interesting, and I'm not sure how scanning GitHub repos helped it to learn how to do this. So I was editing a section of the Taming the Terminal book using Visual Studio Code. We wrote it all in code so that we could use GitHub and it all works great. And uh, so anyway, I was doing some editing and Bart had a section that I thought needed some clarification. So I, of course, opened an issue in GitHub, but then I fixed it myself. In one section, Bart was explaining how to add your SSH keys to Apple's keychain. He inserted the code he pulled from his terminal session. He showed that he was prompted to enter his passphrase for his SSH keys. Well, the change I wanted to add to the book was to point out that you may not be prompted for your passphrase because I wasn't prompted when I followed those steps. So I typed in, quote, note that you may not, and GitHub Copilot finished my sentence. It added, be prompted for the passphrase, in which case you'll get a message like the following. It was exactly what I was going to write. It was like word for word what I would have written. Except that GitHub Copilot had a typo in it. It wrote prompted instead of prompted. I checked to see if we have the same typo If it's somewhere else in this document, maybe it replicated it, but we did not. We did not make that typo. So I have no idea how GitHub Copilot knew what I was going to type, but whoever it learned from for this code had, had a typo in their code. After writing that note, I started to type what the terminal was showing to me. I wasn't copying and pasting from my terminal session because I needed to show it as though Bart had typed it, not me. And if I'd used my own copy and paste, it would have had my username and all this other stuff in it. I typed the code separator, and then I hit enter and I paused, and GitHub Copilot typed in identity added colon slash user slash Bart slash dot SSH slash ID underscore RSA and then in parentheses the same thing. I don't think GitHub Copilot learned that from its GitHub AI training, unless it scanned the Taming the Terminal book itself, which I suppose is altogether possible. It's also possible that it simply copied it from a few lines above where the same line was typed. Either way, it guessed correctly, and I didn't have to type it. In another example, I was struggling with some error checking for my time shifter clock, and I was trying and deleting code over and over again. In every attempt, I was testing whether these two things were true, had the callbacks not fired, and if the value in my input box was greater than two characters long. One time I typed if callbacks.fired equals equals false and GitHub Copilot typed in ampersand ampersand input box.val parentheses dot length greater than two. It typed that in for me automatically and that is exactly what I needed to type. Now in this case, it was some of the code that i deleted earlier, so it was obviously learning from me as I was doing it, but it was exactly what I needed it to do. Another time, I was searching for a solution online, and I found the JavaScript class called MutationObserver. I'd never looked at MutationObserver before. Now in my searching, I found several lines of code using MutationObserver that looked like it might do what I needed. As I started to replicate the code by typing by hand, which I always do, suddenly GitHub Copilot autofilled precisely the code as written that I had found on some random website. That one blew my mind. Now you may be wondering by now what you're supposed to do if the offered code is not what you want. I said you hit tab to accept it. If it's not what you want, you can just ignore it and keep typing and it just goes away. But what you might miss is that the suggestion you see is not necessarily the only suggestion GitHub Copilot has for you. When you get a suggestion, but it isn't what you want, you can cycle forward through all of its suggestions by holding down Option Right Square Bracket, or Option Left Square Bracket if you want to go back to previous suggestions. Now, if you don't feel like cycling through all of the suggestions one by one, you can hold down Control-Enter. This shortcut causes GitHub Copilot to open in a new pane in Visual Studio Code that shows you all of the solutions it has for you in a list. In the simple HTML example I put in the show notes, it says at the top, Synthesizing 10 of 10 solutions, duplicates hidden. Now eight of the solutions were duplicated, so it only left two solutions. Above each solution, there was a link that says, Accept Solution. When you click on one to accept, the code is inserted into your file and GitHub Copilot closes itself. It's very polite that way. Now I haven't gotten those keyboard shortcuts into muscle memory yet, so I find it handy that if you just hover over a suggestion GitHub Copilot is making for you, then there's a pop-up showing you the keystroke to cycle through the options, along with a single click to open GitHub Copilot to show you all of the suggestions. Now here's another neat example. A common practice in programming is to set a variable to false just so you know your starting point, and then in your code you do something else to set it to true. I wrote let didblur becomes equal to false. And then I wrote input blur, and I started a function. As soon as I did that, it autofilled didblur becomes equal true. And it just typed that for me. It just knew, well, you're gonna, you just told me you wanted it to be false, so I know you want to change it to true so you can do, it to do something else with it. Now, I'll point out one more time that my examples aren't probably all that difficult to guess, but even at that, it's a time saver when it makes good suggestions and then it gets out of my way if I choose to ignore it. Another time, I was creating three sections, they call them divs, for hours, minutes, and seconds. The format I had was div class equals call dash two, border, hours, and then closing the div. After I wrote the first one, when I hit enter, GitHub Copilot created an identical div for minutes. And then seconds, and finally milliseconds. Well, I didn't actually need milliseconds, but I did need the other ones. I did need to have hours, minutes, and seconds, and it autofilled all of those for me so I didn't have to do that repetitive typing. Now, my final example is about comment statements. I like to create starting and ending comments for my embedded HTML tags. I find it really hard to keep track and make sure you have opening and closing tags that match and that they're all indented properly. So these comments like open column for buttons and close column for buttons are very helpful to me. After I wrote an opening comment, I went to the corresponding closing tag and GitHub Copilot wrote the closing comment for me exactly as I would have written it. It was awesome. Now, I have seen some information online that people are, uh, some researchers have found that there's maybe not good code being written and copied, I shouldn't say copied, but not all of the code in all of GitHub is good code. You still have to be responsible for your own code. You need to make sure it's secure and that you're not putting in buffer overflow errors and all that kind of nonsense. So don't let it just do everything for you. But I think it's actually a pretty cool tool like it is. Now, I'd love to write a bottom line about GitHub Copilot, but I can't for several reasons. One, it's only in early testing, so we don't know how it's going to develop. We don't even know if it's going to be free or maybe freemium when it's done. I couldn't find anything about that online. We don't know what's going to become of the legal questions being posed about using AI to learn from open source code and what that means in terms of licensing. I do know one thing, though. GitHub Copilot is helping me see new solutions when I'm coding, it's taking the burden off my hands for repetitive typing, and it's auto-completing my comments for the most part correctly. I like it, and if you do any coding, I think it might be helpful to you too. You can sign up for the technical preview at copilot.github.com. Did you know that Apple applications aren't really in your top-level applications folder with all of your other apps? If you open the Applications folder on your Mac using the Finder, you'll see all of your Apple apps happily intermingled with your third-party apps. But it turns out, they're not really there. To prove what I'm saying, we need to view files from the command line using the Terminal app. Now, if you haven't ever used the Terminal before, please don't be afraid. This is going to be very, very easy. It's very light lifting, I promise. Terminal is inside the Utilities folder inside your Applications folder. (laughs) Or is it? Anyway... We're going to change directory and terminal to your normal applications folder. So in the terminal, you're going to use the command cd, that's short for change directory. So in the terminal, simply write cd space slash applications. Now let's list the files in this folder using the ls command. So you simply type ls and hit enter. Now if you compare this list to the finder view of your applications folder, you'll see that all of your third-party applications are there but you will not find any of your Apple apps listed in this directory. Now you may have noticed that your Mac has another applications folder under system. Let's change directory using our newly learned CD command to the system level applications folder. We do that by typing CD space slash system slash applications. Follow that with LS and looky here, here's all of your Apple apps in the system level applications folder all by themselves without all of your third-party apps. Isn't that kind of curious? Well, I noticed this a long time ago and I thought about doing a write-up just called Fun Facts to Know and Tell. But recently I had an experience where knowing this gave me a clue to a problem I was having. The problem I've been having is that Spotlight keeps forgetting where my applications are. I launch Spotlight and I type in mail and it shows me things like the Gmail app in the Mac App Store instead of finding mail on my drive. When this is happening, I also notice that Spotlight is indexing my drive. After a while, it finishes it, and then I can launch apps again via Spotlight. But then a few hours later, it stops finding them, and it starts indexing again. Luckily, there's an easy trick to force a re-index, which I hoped would unconfuse Spotlight. The easiest way to do it is through the Spotlight System Preferences pane. There's a tab in there for privacy. This is where you put volumes or folders you don't want to be indexed by Spotlight. A good thing to put in there is your connected backup drive, and you do that so you don't accidentally start opening things via Spotlight, but on your backup drive when you wanted to be doing it from your main drive. If you want to force Spotlight to re-index your drive, you simply drag your main drive into the Privacy tab for Spotlight, and that will stop the indexing. You close System Preferences, reopen it, and take the drive back out, which will cause Spotlight to re-index the drive. Fortunately for me, this didn't shake loose whatever was wrong, because my Mac continues to forget where the apps are, re-indexes on its own, finds them, and then forgets again. Now, I didn't have any other good ideas, so I wrote to the Mac geek Gab because they know everything, and John F. Braun suggested using a, com- a command uh, that he wrote into an email to me, sudo, space, mdutil, space, dash, capital E, slash. In the terminal, you can view the manual for most commands by typing in the word man followed by the command. So I wanted to know what that really was. Anything with a dash in front of it is called a flag, and these are described in the list with the manual. So again, in your terminal, you can do this. I typed in man space mdutil, and the manual told me, mdutil manages the metadata stores used by Spotlight. Okay, fair enough. But what does the flag dash capital E mean? The easy way to find that out is, again, looking at the manu- man page for mdutil, it lists all of the flags, so you see all the things that start with dashes. It says, dash e. This flag will cause each local store for the volumes indicated to be erased. The stores will be rebuilt if appropriate. Well, this sounded dandy except for the rebuilt is appropriate part. I kind of want it to definitely rebuild everything, but what the heck, I ran the command. Just like with dragging my disk into the privacy pane, the mdutil command worked for a day or so, and then the problem came back. I booted into safe mode to try to clear things out, but the problem came back. Why not try an SMC reset? We always do those. That seemed to fix the problem too, but the problem came back. That's when I realized simply rebooting fixes it temporarily too. I tried testing in other accounts of my system, and the problem wasn't there, but since I can't really work in those accounts for very long because none of my stuff is there, I don't think I really proved whether it was working or not. Now, after literally weeks of this problem, I got a clue to the root cause. I realized that it wasn't all apps that wouldn't launch when the problem was occurring. It was only Apple-specific apps, not my third-party apps. Since we know that the Apple apps are not in the slash applications folder, and instead they live in slash system slash applications, what if the permissions were borked on the Apple applications folder? I looked at them using the terminal, that's kind of an advanced topic, so I'm not going to go into it here, but I didn't see anything wrong. So now I have this great clue, but what do I do with the information? Well, right around this time, I had a whole new problem on my Mac. Now, I want you guys to remember, I did a clean install, so fiddly things wouldn't have to happen. It's only been like eight months since my clean install, and I'm still having all this weirdness. Maybe, maybe don't take my advice, don't do a clean install, why bother? All this weirdness happens anyway. All right, well, the new problem I had, this new entertainment, was that when I used the caps lock key, my Mac would pause for up to full a full two seconds before continuing to finish what I typed. The pause was so long that often the words I typed after the capitalization word came out, it, they came out before the capitalized word. I know many of you are yelling into your devices that the caps lock key is evil and I should disable it. But you know what? I learned to touch type when I was a young child from my mother's 1946 typing school book, and it was good enough for the pop mom, it's good enough for me. Now, while that was supremely annoying, I realized then that autocorrect caused the same 1-2 to two second lag. I may be a touch typist, but autocorrect is still my friend, and now it was betraying me as well. Then things got really bad because a text expander snippet expansion was also plagued with the interminable lag. That was unacceptable. I did write to the text expander people and they tried to figure it out, but I figured since it's happening with autocorrect, with my caps lock key, it's probably not their, t- their problem, so it was time to take this drastic action. My friend and Apple consultant Apple, uh, Pat Dengler suggested it might be time for an over-the-top install of the operating system. Now, I'm not talking about a nuke and pave here. This is actually a very simple and quick way to replace the operating system without a lot of bother. Think of it like lifting everything in your house up in the air, putting in new but identical carpeting minus the stains you had, and then setting the furniture right back down. That's how I like to do the, I think, of the -the over-the-top reinstall. So this sounds terrifying, but it's actually really easy, and it also doesn't take very much time. You simply boot into recovery mode, run the reinstall, and it takes like maybe an hour. Of course, don't do this without a full backup, but in my experience, it hasn't been destructive and it only fixes things. After the reinstall, not only did these super annoying pauses go away, to my delight, Spotlight started doing its job properly. Until it forgot all about the Apple apps and started re-indexing again. Alright, it was time for the most drastic of solutions. I knew I had to call Apple Care, but I didn't want to. I am so tired of calling Apple Care, and I'm never happy afterwards. I don't want to call them anymore. So I procrastinated for a few weeks, uh, successfully only because of something I heard on the Mac Geek app. I didn't realize that you can use Launchpad to launch apps just like you can with Spotlight. And yes, I hear how dumb that sounds, not realizing that something called Launchpad can launch apps. But I didn't know it could be invoked with control space. That means it's just as easy as Spotlight, and all I have to do is retrain more than a decade of muscle memory and switch to control space instead of command space. Interestingly enough, Launchpad can always find my Apple apps when Spotlight has amnesia. Now, it still bugged me that Spotlight was so broken for me, so I finally broke down and I called Apple. I told Sam, the first level tech, that I figured there was a 90% chance he'd have to send me up to a senior tech, and then I described pretty quickly what the problem was and everything I would tried. Sam immediately said, yep, you're going to a senior tech. I was so happy that Sam did that quickly. I told him so many times people go, no, I'm going to help you figure it out. And I know they can't. Uh, so, you know, it's, many times the first level techs have been amazing. I don't want to put them down because um, usually I tell them, why are you a first level tech? Because you're amazing. But I was pretty sure this was going to be a tough one. So Sam handed me off to Nicole and she has been lovely as well. She quickly read Sam's notes. We chatted a bit and she said, yeah, you've done everything I'd have told you to do. Off to engineering for you. And we all know that off to engineering is a euphemism for wishing you into the cornfields from that awesome episode of the Twilight Zone with Billy Mummy. It's basically where tech problems go to die. Sandy is still waiting for engineering to get back to her. Any minute now they're going to fix her problem, they swear it's going to be fixed in the next OS. Anyway, back to all about me. In a crazy twist of events, engineering actually responded, and they responded quite quickly. They sent a message back to Nicole to relay to me. They suggested something very similar to John F. Braun's command line method, but with a few more steps. They told me to open the terminal and run the command sudo launchctl load space dash W and a bunch of glop that ended in a plist file. Well, off to the man page to read launchctl. Well, all it says is interfaces with launch D. Mm, all right, what's launch D? knew it had to do with launching stuff, but uh, the man page says, system-wide and per-user daemon agent manager. I said that wrong. I'll get it yet. System-wide and per-user daemon agent manager. That didn't have a lot of meaning for me, so I just went ahead and ran the command. I got the response that the service in the command was already loaded, so I guess I didn't even need to do that step. I didn't need to do an unload. The engineer's next directions were to restart make sure Time Machine wasn't running, and then they told me to run almost the exact same command John F. Braun suggested. This time, they put the sudo command in front. Sudo means super user do. I have never known is it sudo or sudo, and whichever way I'm saying it, I'm sure a nerd's going to tell me I'm wrong. But anyway, it means super user do, which escalates your privileges for the upcoming command. The engineering person said to run sudo mdutil space dash capital E, lowercase a, I, and then off, and then do it the other way around and turn it on. So this is interesting because we used mdutil space dash E last time to cause each local store to be erased and rebuilt only if appropriate. So according to the man pages for mdutil, the dash A means to apply the command to all stores on the volume, which we didn't do before, and dash I allows you to add the on and off commands. So yes, what he told me to do, or she told me to do, sorry, uh, is turn it off and turn it back on again. So the last thing uh, engineering suggested was the command mdutil space dash a s. Well, the s dash s flag tells mdutil to show the status of indexing by volume on the system. When I ran the status command right after doing the turn it off and back on again dance with mdutil, It showed me each of my volumes and said indexing enabled next to them, with the exception of my backup drive. Remember, I said you should exclude your backup drive, and I have done that. So that one said disabled, but all the other ones said enabled. That makes sense. You know, that all made complete sense. But later, when the system starts failing uh, to find Apple apps again, I ran the status flag on MDUtil again, and now it says it's disabled. Not sure if that's a clue or not, but I've sent it off to engineering. The final instructions from engineering were to make sure to not launch any third-party apps until the indexing was finished. That was really annoying. It said not to run Time Machine either, but that didn't bother me because I don't run Time Machine. Finally, when all was working again, they asked me to run a diagnostic on Spotlight. Turns out if you open Activity Monitor from your utilities folder inside Applications, or using Spotlight if yours is functioning properly, There's a little circle with three dots, uh, a three-dot icon. When selected, it'll let you run a spin dump, system diagnostics, or spotlight diagnostics. I had never seen that before. It took a while to run and it created a huge bundle of text files, so there's no chance I'm going to be able to read and interpret it, but I thought it was cool they have something to look at. Now, I decided to run this diagnosis when Spotlight was misbehaving because it seemed like it might be uninteresting to give it to them when it was working. Now I'm at the twiddle my thumbs again and wait stage but at least I have the impression that engineering is looking into it. Now this all started as a fun fact to know and tell about Apple's apps only pretending they live in the normal applications folder, but I actually ran into needing to know this tidbit a second time recently. In Programming by Stealth, Bart was teaching us how to tell our terminal what our preferred text editor is. You can tell it to use one of the nerdy command line editors like VI or Nano, or I suppose Emacs, and that feels natural to me because you're still, you stay in the command line. Or you can have it use a GUI app like TextEdit. It'll pop up when you ask it to edit a file in the command line. Well, my configuration.file, I dutifully told mine to point to an app I like called Cot Editor, And that's a third-party text editor. And it worked perfectly. But then I tried changing it to TextEdit and asking it to edit from the command line did not open TextEdit. That's when I realized I was working at the command line and I was typing the full path to the app. And TextEdit is not in slash applications, it's in slash systems applications. So see, I told you this was a handy thing to remember. The bottom line is that I think that knowing that your Apple apps are really in the normal applications folder is not only a fun fact to know and tell, might be a good piece of information to just kind of tuck away in the back of your brain just in case things get weird for you. Also, I'll let you know if engineering from Apple ever lets me come back in from the cornfields so I can use Spotlight reliably ever again. So you know what's awesome? When the exchange rate is in your favor and someone cool like Nick Box signs up as a patron through Patreon using British pounds. I feel like I'm making money illegally at such a good exchange rate. In any case, Nick is my hero because he went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and he pledged a pound amount that reflected the value he feels he gets from the show. How awesome is that? If you'd like to become awesome like Nick, you can become a patron too. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boost Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing just
1: fine. Just back in from an unexpectedly dry cycle. Um, That's bizarre. It's <laughs> very, very rare for the Irish weatherman to predict rain and to be wrong.
0: Sun and wrong. <laughs> yeah, no problem. But rain it's and a wrong. Pretty, it's a pretty easy bet, right? That uh, is also Bart- true. Posted in our Slack at podfee.com slash Slack, where you should totally join and have fun with us. He posted, uh, how many air tags do people have? And he showed the list of all the things he has air tags on, which was about 127 items, near as I could tell. Four of which were umbrellas, <laughs> which I thought was was three. really funny. But it was okay, 11 items and three umbrellas, but yeah, your point stands quite well. <laughs> what I thought was funny was, I I I, I have an umbrella, it's it the second umbrella I have bought in probably 30 years. I bought one and it had a a lifetime guarantee. And actually, no, I didn't even pay for it. It had a lifetime guarantee. And when it was like 23 years old, it broke. And I thought, you know what, just for fun, I'm gonna see if that lifetime guarantee works. And it did, and they sent me another one. So I've had one umbrella. Well, it's not like it gets used, right? (laughs) I'm just amazed that there was someone to send it to. Well, it was was Macy's that I bought it from. Ah. So it was a huge company, but uh, yeah. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Actually, I think it was is. May Company. It became Macy's. So no, they did. They did honor their previous uh, deal. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, we live in slightly different worlds. We we do rather. Yeah, no. Umbrellas are
1: very important to me. They make the difference between cranky Bart and not cranky Bart on typical <laughs> Irish weather. <laughs>
0: Well, hey, uh, before we actually kick in, since we're totally off topic here, I wanted to point out that uh, Bart had Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News show on his August episode of Let's Talk Apple. And he had him on to do an extended discussion, along with the regular month's news, of Apple's uh, proposed child protection features. And I just wanted to highlight it because it's a different discussion than you and I had. Um, not because you said anything fundamentally different, but because Tom is such a great person to throw these ideas across. Um, he was described by a good friend of his as being pathologically unbiased. And yeah. it's such a great description because I've never met anybody as unbiased as Tom. So he's not an Apple fanboy. He's not an Apple hater. He's just a person who understands this stuff. And I thought yeah. it was a really, really great discussion.
1: Well, I really enjoyed it. And I'm really, really happy that Tom gave so freely of his time because I was really worried about recording that episode because there's so much just factless noise on that topic and i was like well the one thing i don't want to do is contribute any factless noise
0: like that, that right. is one,
1: whatever else i do i don't want to do that and it just seemed to me that someone who is known for being objective unbiased clear reasoned well informed knowledgeable, knowledgeable yeah. <laughs> that seemed like the person i wanted so i invited tom and i you know, basically pitched that I want to have a
0: reasoned discussion about this and I think you'd be perfect. And he's like, yeah, I'm game. And yeah, it was, it was fantastic. And I I see it as complimentary to the conversation you and I had, because I keep learning each time I hear it uh repeat you know gone through by somebody else some there were some subtle points in there that that i just kind of they kind of clicked into place after hearing uh you and tom talk and so uh more stuff had happened like there was more time for me to digest
1: it since we spoke there was there was more time for apple to clarify some stuff release more faqs it was actually it's one of the luxuries of a monthly show is that it wasn't a hot take
0: yeah Yeah. Yeah. You had the Well, yeah, that's one of the great things about Let's Talk Apple is he does have the ability to look at things in perspective across a month. It's not, oh, my God, this is a a big emergency. It's like you find out whether it's really an emergency by the time you record. Unless you're very
1: unlucky and something spectacular happens the day before you record. But yeah, that's the basic idea.
0: Or the day after. after. So this is not a security topic, but I just really wanted to bring this up. The day after Tom and, and Bart recorded, and like I said, they went through all of the uh, the month's news, like Bart does, the month's Apple news. Um, the, the news broke that Japan had put in place a, a, a new law regulation that is going to affect the globe for Apple with respect to the App Store. And I thought, I'd love to just hear you describe what what happened and what is, do we know what it means yet? Well, we we know the vague outlines. It's actually a settlement rather than a law. So basically,
1: they were being investigated in Japan and rather than having it be forced into, uh, basically, it's a negotiated settlement rather than a, an imposed law by a parliament.
0: But not a money type settlement.
1: No, as in a uh, regulator works with company to agree how to get out of being cranky with each other.
0: Yeah. so what what was ruled, Where what was the, the settlement?
1: Well, so Apple have said that they are going to allow, there's going to be some rules around it and some guidelines around it, but they're going to allow developers of reader apps, which is a category Apple have been using initially only internally, and then as they've become more open in how their App Store rules work, it's become a public thing that there are certain apps that fall into this category. So their apps were, the normal interaction with the app would be that you would install the app already owning some sort of content and expecting to be able to access that content. So the ultimate reader app would be the Kindle app which literally okay. fits the definition like without even bending it slightly right you read stuff right. in the Kindle app. So it would be insane to think that you could not open the Kindle app and read your books. Like what else would the Kindle app be for? So it's a reader app. Um and Netflix and stuff fall into that category too. And before the settlement, you were not allowed to offer the user any link to even a help article that would mention the fact that you could buy content outside of the app. Because you can't sell it in the app. And that isn't changing, right? So it's not a case that all of a sudden you can open the Kindle app and buy Kindle books on iOS. That's not changing.
0: Well... (laughs) Am- <laughs> technically, I think you can build a reader app where you can buy content inside the app, but then Apple would take 30%, and none of the big yeah. companies do that.
1: Right, and depending on the company, that's for different reasons. So in the case of Netflix, they could, because they make their own content, but in the case of someone like Spotify, their margin on the music they resell is less than 30%. So if they had to pay Apple 30%, they'd make a loss every time someone streamed a track, which is obviously mm-hmm. not a very good business model. So, you know. But you know Netflix could hypothetically um, okay. but they don't because thirty percent is is a fairly sizable dent in one's uh, business so at the moment you can't you can't give any sort of indication of where you would go for help at all and what's changing is not that you can buy in the app, not that you can embed a web page into the app. So Apple are going to get to retain the concept that when you're in the app, you're in the app and Apple's rules apply and you know that you're safe from all the fraud and stuff. But you're allowed to tell people that there is a universe outside the app and then the user can leave the app, open Safari and go into the big bad internet. And so the idea being, I think the reason Apple are amenable, I think, is because it means that there's a clear line between this is the walled garden there is a door. You are walking through the door. You are now outside of the Wald Garden. You're on the public internet.
0: Have fun. Have fun. And it, and it so it's not changing third party payment systems, or uh, it's not necessary. It's not a third party app store. You're still going to get the Kindle app from the app store. Yeah. But you can buy your, it'll at least help you go buy it. I, yeah. You know, I, we were, Bart and I were talking about this before we started. And by the way, we know this isn't a security topic, but we want to talk about it. So we're doing it. You can't stop us. Um, it's your show. literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we were talking about it beforehand and he said, "Well." and Bart was talking about how confusing it is when you go into the Netflix app and there's no button to tell you how to get into Netflix. There's nothing to, to give you any information. I said, yeah, but everybody knows what Netflix is and everybody knows what Amazon Kindle is. And you said, yeah, but what about the next app? When a new app That's comes out that that has a service that everybody doesn't know what it is and you'd click it and you're like, yeah, there's nothing here. I don't know what this is. All right, I'm leaving. One yeah, star.
1: The, the, yeah, yeah, one star, yeah. Like there was a day when Netflix was a thing you heard about and you might go, huh, I wonder what that is. I mean, nowadays there's no huh about it, right? But mm-hmm. you could hear something on the radio or whatever and think, oh, I'll give that a go. And right now today you'd open it, you'd see an icon, it might look pretty, and you'd be presented with a login screen and you'd be like, oh, okay, well, that, that was a waste of my time. Yeah. Whereas they could now offer a help button.
0: Right, right. Which so the help button you- would, be, or, or a li- or link to say learn... I mean, learn can more it say, at, buy, buy stuff in this app by going over here? I'm not even sure you put allow. the
1: word buy it. I think it would be a case of, you know, get help or learn more or our support page or FAQ or some, something to the effect of there is, there is a thing. It is over there.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. And the, the most interesting thing about this is this settlement doesn't affect Japan. It affects everybody we all get because
1: apple have chosen to just do the one thing. So hypothetically right. apple could have decided to have two sets of rules. And then every yeah. app developer would have to issue two versions of their app, one for the Japanese, <laughs> right? You see where this is why this would not work, right?
0: Right, and then the EU would come in and demand the same thing, and then blah, blah, right. blah, 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 or slight mutation. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're not done with this topic yet, but New. we haven't ever talked about it on any of my shows, so I thought it'd be fun to just kind of pick that one piece up. And it, it was sad that it was, it was literally the, like four hours after Tom and, and Bart finished recording on this very topic.
1: Yeah, and we just said, because there was a settlement with, with American developers that initially was reported as if it was what happened in Japan, and it wasn't. And we were basing myself on Tom and, you know, big sad face was basically the conclusion we came to. And less than 24 hours later, what we actually wanted became real. And yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: the the only interesting thing about the settlement in the United States was that it's something like a hundred million dollars to go to developers. But the lawyers get get ready for it. What percentage? 30 30 (laughs) percent. It's hilarious. You just
1: can't. You literally can't win. It's 30 percent to somebody
0: Right, right. All right. Well, we should get back to our regularly scheduled programming. And I hear there's some big news in Apple's CSAM child protection uh, stuff launch.
1: Indeed. So there's no point in bearing the lead, I figured. So the top of our feedback section is Apple have said in a very short press release to, some, to, to various uh, reporting outlets, basically, we've hit the pause button. We are collecting feedback. We should consider said feedback. And we shall release an updated version that addresses said feedback. No more detail. No exact timeline. The implication of the phrasing is that it's a few months, but, hmm. you know, toss a coin. Yeah. And there are the skeptics who say, oh, clearly this is a face saving exercise and WWDC 2022 will come and go and they shall never be spoken of again. Who knows?
0: Oh, I don't think so. I think st- they've they've got to do it.
1: I think so too. But look, you know, I mean none they can't not do ball. the
0: CSAM protection at this point. I
1: I would agree. I think the theory is well they'll just do what everyone else does, scan it on the server side and give up on end-to-end encryption. And I'm thinking
0: that doesn't does not.
1: Sound applely.
0: No, In my no. opinion,
1: based on nothing but my opinion, that doesn't I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't it doesn't no. sound plausible. So we shall see. Um I do also it's not quite a palate cleanser, but it is a recommendation. I'm a huge fan of Cara Swisher, as always have been, and she is now uh, with the New York Times, and she has a new podcast called Sway, and she always manages to find an angle on things I wasn't expecting. Mm. And we've heard so much about the tech angle and the EFF's point of view and the privacy advocate's point of view. At no point in time has my tech media consumption included the child protection point of view. Well, Mm. Cara to the rescue... That's exactly the point of view you get. And of all people, Ashton Kutcher is actually really heavily involved in this stuff. Really? Anyway. knows what he's talking about. It, it, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I know. My prejudice is based on the characters he plays on television, which is a stupid way to judge a human being, the characters he mm-hmm. plays on television. But no, extremely good interview. And my prejudice, no, not prejudices, my stereotypes of what I assumed would be the other argument. We're we're not, they didn't hold up. They were like, no, 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 we're in favor of privacy. But the reason we like Apple's thing is because Apple have found a way to give us ba- privacy balanced with child protection. That's the whole point here. That's why it's so good.
0: Wow. You said in your show notes, it says Ashton Kutcher and Julie Cordua. Yeah, that's, yeah so Julie
1: Cordua is sort of the... The child ex, the child protection expert, and Ashton Kutcher oh, okay. is one of the founders of a foundation. That it, basically he's the the face that raises the cash. Oh and, wow! And she's the expert.
0: Oh, that sounds fantastic. I will definitely uh, definitely download that one. They're also short.
1: Well, okay, I say short compared to your typical talk show. They're not hour shows. They're a little under half an hour, and okay. it's Kara Swisher. So it's, you're not going to be bored.
0: Right, right, and she doesn't pull any
1: punches. No, she does not. She, I, do, I love how she will ask the question, like, why Mark Zuckerberg came back. I understand why Mark Zuckerberg did one Kara Swisher interview. I will never understand why he did two or three. Because she just asked all the obvious questions. Like, she got him to say, oh, no, no, but Nazism is a valid point of view or something. You know, basically, she <laughs> nailed him to the
0: mass so hard on the neo-Nazis. Was, yeah, anyway. I, so, I love well, her. Well, I, I always have to... Um I've probably told this before, but I always have to give my anecdote about Kara Swisher and Mark Zuckerberg and interviews is I was at the All Things Digital Conference when um, uh, he was about 12 years old and uh, CEO (laughs) of Facebook, and he was making absolutely every single mistake in the book. And he was absolutely the most uncomfortable guest on stage I've ever seen in any event ever. And he was, uh, he was so uncomfortable. He was wearing his his hoodie from the company, and he he was sweating profusely, and he was just doing a terrible job. He was he was fall he was crumbling, and Kara Swisher backed off, and then basically treated him like a like a, she felt sorry for him, like a young child, and made him take his sweatshirt off because he looked so uncomfortable. And I remember asking her afterwards. I said, "You had her." They're in the palm of your hands, Carol. Why did you why did you let him off the hook and not just go in for the kill? And she said cuz I would have just looked mean. And yeah. it was so interesting cuz she can. She's got the quiver, you know. She's got that, that 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 stiletto knife just ready to plunge, but if you're if you're too weak and it'll just, you know, look like bullying, then she's not going to do it. it. It was really an interesting insight into the way uh the way she does things.
1: Yeah. Um Actually, I, I, I didn't include it in the show notes. I was 50-50 on it. But since we're giving out recommendations anyway. Um, there's another podcast episode that, that surprised me. It's an interview with Cheryl Sandberg on the We Are Supported By podcast. And I don't agree with Facebook. And I don't agree. I mean, her and Mark are running Facebook. It's their policies that are, I believe are so negative. But her view on how you should run an organization and how... Women should be treated in the world, and why you know, we are supported by is all about basically the fight for women being treated fairly, and how you know it interviews people who have contributed in a strong way to you know it should be normal, you know. And what's it she was saying, you know, someone asked her how she manages to balance her kids, and she said, Have you asked my husband that? Mm. Said, no, <laughs> well, then I'm not <laughs> answering. <laughs> But anyway, we are supported by, in the interview, Cheryl Car- uh, Sandberg. I respect her. I don't agree with her, but I respect her, which surprised me. I wasn't expecting to, but I genuinely do. Anyway, there so there we are. It's a CSAM on pause. We shall see what happens next. Uh, also a small amount of update on the NSO slash Pegasus group story, uh, we have more detailed reporting specifically of some people who are targeted, uh, Bahraini activists unfortunately are now proven to have been targeted by Pegasus, although we can't know which government was spying on them, it may not have been their own, but nonetheless, not good. Uh, also with the not-so-great-news category, iCloud Private Relay, which I love and we talked about in detail, is going to release as beta in iOS 15 this fall. So it's
0: which not feature launching. R- remind us what that one did. So that is the one that
1: uses ODO, uh, Oblivious DNS over HTTPS, and also as an extra bonus, wraps HTTP content in the same ODO tunnel. To give us uh, security, basically on our web traffic as well as our DNS, and DNS is the real weak link. Maybe it was harder
0: to write than they thought.
1: I think it's more a case of if you make it a beta and there is some performance issues, then you can say, "Look, it's a beta," and Mm -hmm. you can deal the basically you can deal with the engineering. And how do you load like iOS devices? There is no soft launch on
0: iOS. (laughs) Yeah, because it hits everybody at once.
1: It's a lot of human beings try hammering the servers at once. And I'm sure the engineers have worked really hard to
0: stress test it, but I'm not
1: sure there is anything that can stress test it like being on actual iPhones.
0: No. And and iPhone users adopt new OSs really quickly.
1: Yeah, which is great from a security and features point of view, but got to be scary if you're an engineer running (laughs) something like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, okay. I think it's an engineering rather than a, you know, a fundamental issue. I think it's just basically, how do we scale this up? Well, if we call it a beta, if we don't scale it up as well as we thought, then we can say it was a beta. Um, and then social media, is, you know, this has been a trend now for quite a few, quite a while now, really, where the social media companies are very clearly proactively improving their platforms to detoxify them and to make them safer. And they're not flicking a magic switch and all of a sudden, ta-da, social media doesn't suck. But the trend line is in the good direction. Um, so the first one, some people are going to think is a bad direction. Uh, I am not going to put it in the bad category or the good category. I think, I don't see how they could do anything else. But Instagram have basically said, you need to tell us what age you are because we're changing our rules for what people of different ages can do. And if we don't know what age you are, we can't actually do the right thing. And half the planet is going, but Facebook want to know how old you are. And then the other half of is going, yeah, they probably know already. What they need is an actual date of birth so they can do stuff legally instead of guessing your date of birth and being almost certainly correct. So I some people are losing their hair over this. I'm like, no, that's how age-appropriate settings work. You tell them <laughs> <Yeah>. your age. <laughs> I so I, I, think I think it's a good news story, but some people disagree. The rest are much more straightforward. So Flipboard are rolling out a a new way of customizing your newsfeed. And they're explicitly saying, this is to help you fight doom scrolling. (laughs) If you don't want to be subsumed in a sea of negativity, here are some settings to help you. And then Twitter have also released a new feature called Safety Mode. And it uses basically some clever learning. So it's not just... They analyse the content of tweets to see if they're likely to be aggressive or offensive or, you know, n- nasty, basically. But they also analyse your past relationship with the person. So if they're your mates and they're having a bit of banter, you're not, they're not going to get blocked. Because this is someone you interact with regularly, this is normal. But if you're, a, say, a soccer player who missed a penalty in the World Cup and you happen to be in the UK and black... If you just get a torrent of abuse from a, a user you've never communicated with before, they'll just get auto-blocked. And you'll okay. have a page where you can go and see who has been auto-blocked, but you don't have to go look if you don't want to. So your friends and family should sail straight through, even if you guys are, you know, joking away with each other. But random strangers who insult you out of the blue will just get auto-blocked.
0: <laughs> so so I, I if I'm insulted perfect. by my friends and family, it's it, it'll be their good. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, but there are people you have a relationship with, so you're right. You've chosen to manage that relationship as opposed to total strangers. So I, I think this is right. this is clever thinking, and I, I yeah. like this kind of clever thinking. Um, a related note: since we're talking about Twitter anyway, they also released some numbers on how many Twitter users have enabled two FA, and uh, basically, they describe it themselves as disappointing, and bleeping was- computer describe it as surprisingly low. So this is one of those cases of. Hey, listeners! I am sure everyone listening to to us now knows that they should get around
0: to. If you haven't, maybe do. So uh, this is a perfect example. By the way, we should say the number. It's two point three percent of active Twitter accounts have enabled one two factor authentication. Um, mm. Oh, I just thought of something. I wonder if that's swayed by how many Twitter accounts are actually bots. <laughs> <laughs> If 90% of the accounts are bots, then this is a pretty high percentage. Um, but but anyway, whether we don't know the answer to that, and it's probably certainly not that that kind of a number, but um, we had a little bit of a discussion of it in Slack, and uh, somebody was saying, yeah, you know, I, I didn't really think it was that important. And then I, I challenged back and said, how important is your name? And the person I was, sure I'm did. not going to out with them, but the person I was talking to who's one of us, you know, really security yeah. conscious, I know that the name they have is very important to them. And they were like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And and that's kind of, if it is your identity, you it's know, I mean, if you just yeah. go and consume and you don't contribute a lot, maybe it wouldn't matter. You know, you can be Bob 1,248 instead of 1,247. You don't really care. Yeah. But if you care about your name, just your name, or people tweeting as you, Actually, that's right. another good example. Um, when Tim Verporten passed away, um, somebody got a hold of his account and started tweeting profane content. Oh. And that is the last thing in the world. Tim Verporten was definitely not in that category no. at all. And so I contacted his wife, and it took, us, it took me a lot of time and energy to get that account back under our control. And we, I had to paper mail them his death certificate to get it back. Jesus. Or get it close. All we needed was just close it. Close, yeah. You know? Make it go away. Make it. Not but be- surf bits doing porn was, I mean, roll over in your grave material. That was it. Was just awful. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So you know, if you care about the name you have or somebody else tweeting as you, boy, click that two fa thing. You're already using one password, LastPass or another. You know. Password manager. Anyway, it's super easy to do two-factor authentication. It's like blink, blink, and the the iPhone and the Mac just fill it all in for you. You're fine.
1: Yeah, and especially for something like Twitter, where you're usually using an app, in which case you do the two FA once. The app is now attached to yeah. your account, and you're good to go.
0: I mean, sometimes you might want to go get like you get Tweetbot or something. You got to go through the little dance, and but your password manager is going to fill it in for you. You don't even have to do it. there's Once yes. you get it set up, there's yeah. no work. It's exactly. not harder. So-
1: so basically if you if you're in that group of
0: people who are like I really should yeah you really should get on it <laughs> Now I would say anybody who can't find it in one password send me an email cuz it is kind of buried it's under a very weird icon it's going to be better in one password 8 it's much more obvious it says one time password right now you have to click on an icon that says I think it says text and you have to change it or no it's got a, it's got a little barcode symbol or a yeah, no, QR code type. symbol
1: so you're adding a new field and the default type for every field is just text and you got to change it to one time password in a little drop down you probably didn't even realize but I th- existed. I think
0: you actually might click on a on a tiny icon that's supposed to be a QR code
1: only after you've found the drop down oh. you didn't see Oh right 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 So that's yeah. the second step that you're never going to get to because you didn't even get to the first step
0: Yeah so I wouldn't say it's the easiest I think I may even have done a an article about that i should i should look it up if i if i have written something i'll drop it into the uh into the show notes
1: i would argue it's really easy it's just not obvious so you're not going to well, that's notice what i mean. it. Yeah.
0: oh yeah yeah yeah
1: because once you know once you know what to do it's trivial but you're not like the
0: amount of, I the amount of people i show it to are like oh it was right yeah. there it's like yep <laughs> the only reason i knew about it was uh was because of uh don McAllister did it on screencast online there you go. You see, someone someone has to show you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, so we have a deep dive for this week. Um, basically, Apple released another piece of new technology that has the potential to make people set their hair on fire. Uh, Apple released details of their digital IDs, which they announced at WWDC. So they're coming to eight US states first, two states very first, which is Arizona and Georgia, and then six states coming a little bit later, which is Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah. Now, okay, right. The concept in the abstract of a digital ID has some people freaked out, who assume it is going to be a privacy train wreck, and they pontificated on various tech shows and and tweets and things about how it's probably going to be a disaster because what you, if I hand over my phone, I mean, isn't that a disaster? They basically hadn't read paragraph one of Apple's actual press release, let alone looked into any of the details. Bottom line, every single concern I heard expressed, Apple had thought of it first, and not only had they thought of it, they'd solved it and got their ducks in a row before announcing the product. And unlike the CSAM announcement... This announcement actually contains all the information needed to allow you to understand what they're doing and that it's actually being done well. It's actually all in the Apple press release. So you probably imagine, if I just said to you in the abstract, digital ID and Apple wallet, you're probably imagining it being something like what happens with your boarding pass or a ticket to a conference or a store loyalty card, right? It's going to be... right. A picture with the information written on it and maybe a two. You 2D have to open your phone, barcode. unlock
0: it, and access it to get to it.
1: Yeah, like when I go shopping and I need to get something off my loyalty card, I unlock it and I scan that barcode at the tail, it goes boop, you know, Then I've unlocked the phone and you know it's all written there. If I'm you know showing someone my COVID pass or whatever, that's all you know, that's kind of what we're expecting, right? Don't think of it like that. There is a model, it's called Apple Pay. Think of how it works when you pay. You tap, it shows you who the merchant is, it shows you how much they're about to charge, and then you biometrically confirm, yes, I agree, and then it is digitally transferred. So at no point in time have you your phone, you don't hand your phone to anyone to use Apple Pay, right? You just tap it off the payment console, it tells you what you're going to do, asks if you're okay, and then uses biometrics to check. That's
0: the model here. So think of it as Let, tap me, let me ask you a question. You do have to unlock the phone. No. You do not. For Apple Pay, you do have to unlock the phone. So that's where it's different. You don't have to unlock the phone. What do you unlock the I phone believe. or do you approve the payment? You I can't bring up Well. I don't know. Hmm. I don't unlock
1: the phone. It shows so me I what just... it's about to charge and I I approve it with my biometrics, but it's not
0: unlocking the phone. It's un- it's a, it's approving the payment. So I just tried. In order to uh, to bring up my Apple card, I have to double click the uh, power button on the right hand side. Right, that's what brings it up. If I yes. do that with it un- with it locked, I'm pointing it away from. it. If I do that, it does not uh, it does not show me my card. You know, the little graphic of the card that I could. But well, you haven't tap. tapped it off a terminal. But I have to um, I have to invoke it before I can tap it on the terminal. I can't just lay my phone on the terminal without invoking it, uh, right, invoking Apple Pay first. Double tap and du- double click. Right, the but once you double tap it, unlo- it has to be unlocked for double clicking. To- okay, to well, work.
1: okay. I, I only ever Apple Pay on my watch, so I'm not going to, that's not the point.
0: The point is with, <laughs> Which the, is the, also ID card,
1: with the ID the card. The important thing you is definitely-
0: the ID doesn't have to be unlocked.
1: You def- yeah, exactly. The point is the ID definitely, definitely, definitely does not have to be unlocked. And Apple were very, very, very clear to point out, you do not unlock the device. The device remains locked at all times.
0: That is, that so, is a critical difference. Critical.
1: So the whole process has been designed around protecting your device's, your device's physical security. It, you do not, it does not leave your custody and it does not leave the locked state. So it is locked and in your hands at all times. So the way it would work is you would walk up to an ID terminal. Initially, this is being rolled out in phases, right? So the first place this happens is the TSA are the first customer.
0: That's not the right word.
1: User. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, Requester. Is TSA a generic term for the globe or is that a US centric phrase?
1: It is a US centric so phrase and know. I mean it in a US centric way.
0: Okay, but I want to say TSA is our security at the airport. The transportation security of T or Administration. Sure. Yeah. You're one of those two. I just uh, want to make sure yeah. people know what TSA is if they're not in the United States. So they run security
1: in airports is, is the is the, the, the real mm-hmm. bottom line here. So when you when you fly between two American cities and someone checks to make sure you're not a terrorist, that's the TSA. They're, they're the administration.
0: people <laughs> administration.
1: Administration. <laughs> there you go. So the TSA will be the first users of this, and it will then roll out. So you know the way with Touch with Apple Pay, we had to wait to use Apple Pay until people had little terminals that we can tap to pay on. Well, with this digital ID, there are going to be terminals for identifying yourself. So as those terminals roll out, this feature becomes more available. So you're only ever going to be using this somewhere that has a terminal that can read the digital ID. So, like your Apple Pay hasn't replaced your credit card, this is not replacing your dig- your physical piece of paper ID. This is augmenting it. So the way it works is you come up to a place that is actually you that is capable of doing digital ID. Your phone is locked. You tap it off the uh, the the terminal that wants to identify you. A message will pop up on the phone saying who it is who's asking and what data fields they're asking for. So it will list Mm. every piece of information being requested. You then use a biometric, either Touch ID or Face ID, depending on which kind of phone you have, to say, I approve. And then the data is wirelessly sent over an encrypted channel. And it's only the data fields in the request. Okay. And in terms of, there's a subtlety with the biometrics. So it is not, you are not unlocking your phone. You are biometrically approving the request. And for touch ID phones, you have to choose one finger. You are not Hmm. allowed to register multiple fingers with the digital ID.
0: Oh, because Uh, that way Steve can't authenticate as me. Bing, bing, bing. That's it exactly.
1: Everyone knows that couples put each other's fingers on each other's phones. So it is one finger. Now you can still do the couple thing for unlocking the phone. It's right, right. But when you set up the ID, you have to assign a finger to the ID or a face. Alright. Oh, yes. With Face ID at the moment, it's just because even though you have the concept of personas, they're still both you. It's just you in one looker versus the other looks. So at the moment, for at the moment for Face ID, there's no distinction being made. Oh, but then if you can
0: authenticate as me, because my second face is Steve,
1: and that actually works reliably.
0: A hundred percent. Interesting. Steve actually wrote to Craig Feder or wrote to Craig Federighi and asked whether that was going to be possible, and he act Craig actually answered and says that's not what we mean you to use it for, but it will work, and it does. Interesting.
1: At, at, I'm not sure how it is, with there is no there's been no discussion. No one's asked Apple the Face ID question, and so we don't have an an answer. Whereas someone did ask Apple the Touch ID question, so we do have an answer. Okay. Um so there's also in terms of setting it up so setting up a card on Apple Pay is more involved than setting up a loyalty card in wallet right your bank is involved in my case Allied Irish Bank they do a whole uh, thing where i have there is there's like an authentication loop through their app to prove my ownership of the card before it goes into my wallet so they have all these procedures in place and so with this digital id card there will be a loop to your state's relevant authority. So if you're in Connecticut, it'll go to the Connecticut department of whoever the hell does IDs. And so you start the process on your phone and you do some steps and then it goes to them for approval and then the ID comes back to your phone.
0: So sort of like how Apple Pay works where a, a token goes ends up going to the merchant after it flushes its way through your bank. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. I, and- I'm still tied up back on the biometrics though, Bart. How okay. is it? I'm going to put my face or my finger down on my phone and not unlock it? Because once that share sheet comes up, once you have tapped that, once you have tapped
1: the terminal, your phone is now in ID mode.
0: So you have to make sure you don't look at it, right? Well, no, but you're just going to
1: take your phone out of your pocket and tap it, right?
0: I don't have a pocket, first of all.
1: <laughs> your phone is in a okay. place your phone isn't strapped to your face your phone is somewhere right but when you pick a up purse. a phone
0: you tend to look at it. It, it it'd be natural for it to cause it to unlock so you got to make sure you don't I mean, it's very difficult for me to pick up my phone and not unlock it but so okay, i've well, got to make sure i don't unlock it in this situation i'm not sure and you then, do
1: have to make sure because okay i don't know this for well, maybe it goes into have a locked state. state there we go that I is not know. a question that was asked. Okay. So that is not an answer we have. We do know that Apple thought very carefully about this, and Apple make it really, really clear that you are not unlocking your phone. You are you are biometrically asserting your identity, and that is all you are doing.
0: I do hope it's that way, because, you know, being a, a privileged white girl, I have never run into the pro- a problem with the police. But uh, as uh, many of my black friends tell me, the last thing in the world they're going to do is hand their phone to a police officer. And, and they so will be very if, if this is a case of where they can hand it to, like let's say they do the, the authentication using Apple's uh, ID and then the cop just goes, no, you have to give me your phone. Okay. Exactly. Now, maybe they're bad enough that they force you to unlock it too and you don't want to die. So yeah, but at that can stage, happen too. whether
1: or not you have a, a digital ID is irrelevant, right? The, yeah. the cop is yeah. now in a whole other territory. Yeah, um, okay. I
0: don't want to discount those concerns.
1: No, no, but they're valid concerns. Yeah. But basically, from the point of view of digital ID, they have been addressed.
0: The yeah. concerns
1: existed before digital ID in terms of being stopped by a cop and being forced to hand over
0: your phone, and they continue to exist. But it's not the ID that's gonna make it any worse than it was.
1: Yeah, it's just it is what it was. This, was, yeah. this neither okay. solves nor worsens the problem. It it leaves it unchanged. The thing that, that I really love about this So the first customer, because we still haven't found the right word, is TSA. And so TSA Mm -hmm. are going to want your travel-specific information out of your card. But the actual digital identity is following an ISO standard. It's in Apple's press release. It's ISO some city number, because that's how ISO standards work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that ISO standard encodes all sorts of data, like blood type and stuff. So as the terminals roll out, different customers, because I still haven't found a better word, will be asking for different pieces of information. So an EMT at an accident site could use this to get just your blood type and your name and your next of kin.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: a liquor store could use this not to get your date of birth, to get an assertion that you are above a minimum age.
0: Uh-huh. So the the, pro-
1: the standard actually allows them to basically say, I want to know if you're over 18 or I want to know if you're over 21, depending on your state. And the only thing the phone will answer back with is true-false. So you'll see on your phone, the one piece of information being asked for by this store is, are you over 21? And you're going, yeah, right, oh, right. I agree to that. Touch ID or Face ID. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, hey, so presto. It so
0: knows, it knows how to give the right information to the right kind of terminal.
1: Right. So the terminal asks the phone, I want this. And then you're displayed with the share sheet that says, this is who is asking for what, and then you double-click to approve.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So it's a very transparent and a very flexible protocol. So as these terminals roll out, the use case really goes up, and so initially what you're getting is convenience, right? It's quicker Mm -hmm. to go through a TSA line with a digital ID than a physical ID. But over time, as the terminals roll out, we actually get a bonus. We get to do things that are more private than a paper ID could ever be. You can't not give like when you go to a liquor store they get everything on that physical id because their yeah, eyeballs a, can read it a all. young
0: wop a young woman walks into a liquor store late at night hands a driver's license over and now the person behind the counter knows their home address exactly whereas with yeah. this
1: digital version Never that none it. of that happens they won't even know the date of birth they will just know is it legal to sell you alcohol yes or no which is all they need to know huh. which is all they need that's to know. pretty so, cool yeah, so long run, we get more privacy from this. Initially, we get more convenience. But in the long run, we get both, which is great. So I am I am really excited about this. And Apple provided enough information for us to actually have an informed discussion about this and to knock our concerns on the head on day one. Lesson learned from the CSAM uh, <laughs> debacle, I think.
0: Yeah, whoever rolled this one out should be in charge of the next CSAM rollout.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: The, the communications, anyway.
1: Yeah, we have no action alerts, so we can jump straight to worthy warnings. Um, think twice about connecting a 3D printer to the cloud. Uh, really? As the naked security headline put it, what's that on my 3D printer? <laughs> cloud bug oh. lets anyone
0: print to
1: everyone.
0: Oh my gosh, I, I want to print the Podfeet logo on something on everybody's 3D printer. Yep, that is literally. But that's how bad not it was. what they chose to print, though, was it?
1: <laughs> well, the one we saw in the Naked Security article was a little plaque that said, "You are using Black Cloud service. It is vulnerable. Sorry to tell
0: you." Oh, that was polite of them. That was
1: polite. Yeah, I'm sure there I were other less polite things printed. <laughs> yeah. um, it was only there for eight hours, and the, the the developer was pretty candid about it. Actually, Naked Security sort of critique. His his apology in a very positive way, basically saying, no weasel to birds about pretending to care about security, no excuses, simple statement of fact, simple statement of resolution.
0: Well, so what is it the printers that have the bug? Is it a, a single cloud service? In that this has case, it the was a
1: specific cloud service had a specific bug. But really, to me, the story, the story, the reason it's in the show notes isn't because the specific example is particularly catastrophic. it was only eight hours the developers was the developer was on the ball basically it was like you have a, you know you have an auga auga and the developer responded promptly and effectively. But I think the bottom line is it's dangerous to connect a piece of physical equipment like a 3D printer to a cloud service. I mean, the idea of this cloud service is to make it easier to send your print jobs to your own printer. So your other computers in the house can more easily find your printer and the cloud sort of connects it all together and you can, I guess, hmm. share things with your friends and stuff. So it's a convenience thing. It's a nice cloud service. But think carefully about letting the outside world access a device that makes physical things happen in your house.
0: Okay. All right. That sounds good.
1: Um, Another... Illustrative story. So again, the story is here to illustrate the point. Why do you need to be careful about clicking on stuff in email? Well, a guy in California just got convicted for stealing 620,000 iCloud photos in a quest to find nudes of women. And his modus operandi was to send email pretending to be Apple support and trick people into giving him their Apple ID username and password. <laughs> Wait,
0: Phishing. just yesterday in, uh, in uh, Chit Chat Across the Pond in, in uh, Programming by Stealth, Bart answered the question, what's the easiest way to get someone's password? Ask them for it. <laughs> <laughs> it remains true. That squishy oh organic God. bit. Oh so again, God. it's
1: here in the show notes to illustrate the point. The specific story is horrible, but it's not the specific story that I think is newsworthy. It's the lesson that's newsworthy. Fishing is real, Fishing happens. Ever present vigilance in the old inbox.
0: You know, to wrap it back into the CSAM thing, I've heard everybody on earth talk about CSAM and whether it's going to be, whether it's or the, the protections that Apple wants to put into place, whether it's going to work or not. Um, And people are saying, well, there's no way for people to force you to put bad images on your computer and upload them. But when I first signed up for WhatsApp, I did it because the SMR podcast guys talked to each other on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd been chatting away with them for months and months and months. And then I went into my, into, uh, my Apple Photos library, and there was a new category called WhatsApp. And I clicked on it, and it was filled with all of the images that they had sent. I had a lot of pictures of meat cuz that's what Chris Ashley liked likes to post, he barbecues a lot. And I realized when I was thinking about that was is some someone could connect with you on WhatsApp and put 31 Csam images into the message, you delete it, you block the people, but they've just gotten into your Apple and your iCloud. Uh, I'm that guessing could happen. that
1: was a while ago. You're right, it, it can happen. Now, That's a it's a little bit Did they less like the default. It's not about the default. So in the past, apps could write to your photo library without needing that express permission to come up, because Apple mm. hadn't started to firewall off right. all the different okay. things. So today, the the app could do it, but not without being
0: way more in your face about it. I would have actually known it was doing that. Correct.
1: Exactly. Oh, and but you know, you know what?
0: Have... You know what? Though no, I still would have clicked yes because I want to send photos, and in order to send photos, I have to say yes to that request. It wouldn't well, occur to me that it was storing those, it's putting other people's photos back into my photos library.
1: Having more recently than you installed WhatsApp, thanks to a certain pandemic, and finally caving in because human contact is more important than my views on Facebook, um, it actually was was quite explicit when it asked me the question, and I told it, no, heck no, sod the sod off.
0: But you never want to send
1: photos then? And no, I can send photos, it just doesn't save them. So it, it offers a separate option, do you want to save incoming photos to iCloud? And I said, no, I do not, but I can still send photos. Like, like I, oh no, I didn't prove that to you because I used Telegram to send you photos today. Uh, but no, I send photos all the time to my mum because uh, she doesn't do Twitter, but she wants to see my, fo- my photography. So every photo I post to Twitter, I, I, um, I send to mum separately through WhatsApp. But okay. WhatsApp does not write its photos into my library. It asked, and I said, nope, thou shalt not. Okay. And Dropbox is the other culprit. Dropbox wants to do that too. Oh, actually, no, it wants to do the reverse. It wants to take every photo in your library and upload it to Dropbox.
0: Yeah. yeah. I don't want you to
1: do that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Uh, And then the last story I have here is once submitted to us by one of our lovely listeners. Um. Again, I guess it's a teachable moment. If you're going to install something as vital as a security system, make sure it's from a reputable company with a long track record of actually being secure. Because this story from Naked Security about a home security system that can be hacked so easily and so unfixably, it just, the more I read, the more I was like, it's not possible they engineered this badly. Oh, nope, they did. They can't have, oh, no, they did that too.
0: What's basically the, name of the company? I oh I don't even remember. See, um, let me follow you link. Uh, Fortress Security Store.
1: Yeah, because that sounds sells secure.
0: Two branded home security setups.
1: Basically, if they know the email address of the person using the security system, then that that's all you need to know to turn off the alarm. Just turn oh, it off nice. remotely. And there are FOBs can never be used. If you use the fob once, you're effectively insecure forever because the fobs don't have any sort of cycling key. The signal to unlock the alarm is the same forever. So if you read uh, the radio... What's, uh, what, what's the fob? As and in our, the button, the little button to turn off your alarm.
0: And a little fob to turn off your alarm. Okay, I've never seen one of those for a, an alarm system. I, I guess I could picture them existing like a fob for a car.
1: Yeah, exactly. So apparently it's a thing in, in modern house alarms. But they're supposed okay. to use a security that involves a rotating key. That it, So basically you can't do a replay attack against them. These don't. So if, yes. you, if you record the RF emission once, for the rest of time, you just play it back and the alarm will turn itself off. Forever. <laughs>
0: This is this is an interesting lesson because, of course, my my question always back to you is, well, how do I know if a company is secure and knows what they're doing and they've been doing security? At the same time, people don't want to use Ring because it's Amazon. Yeah, but they probably know what they're doing in security,
1: and even if they don't, they have been so. If it's a name brand company, they have had the attention of security researchers, and whatever the story is they've had to prove it they've been tested they have been they have been tested because they're a name brand whereas if it's an off brand you'll search for a security incident with and you'll find nothing not because security researchers failed because no one has
0: ever tried yikes I do want to give credit this was from a uh, listener uh, Donna Campbell sent us this
1: yes thank you Donna um, and it was an interesting read. I was just going, they can't be this. B- oh no, they're this bad. And I actually, I love um, something. Naked Security do at the very, very bottom it is basically you know what you can do. And the first few points are what no, you know regular folk can do. And the last few points are what programmers should do. Mm-hmm. How do you not make your product be this bad? <laughs> oh, good. I always love reading those because I'm a nerd, and that's always fun. Uh, so. On to notable news. Um, There was a big meeting in the White House. All the tech companies came. They all pledged to do simple, straightforward things to make security a little bit better. It's really boring, mundane stuff about protecting the infrastructure that keeps the world alive. Very important, but it's not very exciting. But you can read the details in (laughs) Tech Republic. It's it's, it's, it's not going to change the world, but it's a good thing. Uh, Meanwhile, here in Europe, the GDPR has been tested again and uh, rather surprised WhatsApp they knew they were in a bit of hot water over how they communicate to people that WhatsApp is sending data back to Facebook. They basically don't ask for particularly clear permission when they take your cookies and they follow you around the entire internet and then tell Facebook everything. Hmm. And I think, well, not do I think, we know from WhatsApp's financial filings that they had set aside 75 million euro to pay the bill that they were almost certain they were going to get. Turns out that the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland, where WhatsApp is headquartered in Europe, they had a different view on how much it should cost WhatsApp to not properly inform their users about what their cookies are doing. The bill was not 75,000 euro. The bill is 225, sorry, not two, not 75 million, it's 225 million.
0: Oh three my times gosh. what they
1: have set aside. So uh, GDPR has teeth.
0: Nice. I, they'll probably appeal this, right?
1: Oh, they're absolutely appealing. Um, right. Of course they are. Uh, but there was actually a little whoop of joy from uh, my, my, my darling nerdy husband. Um, He's like, yay, go our data protection commissioners. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, we just find WhatsApp.
0: Like, yay. <laughs> that that seems like more than a, uh, a a paper cut amount of money. Yeah. Especially that, when that'll you... That'll leave you a mark.
1: Right, so they had said, they had factored in a cost of business, yeah, 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 we'll set aside 75 million. So then to be hit with three times what they'd factored in as the cost of doing business, that means it does hurt. Yeah, that
0: that yeah. means it's real.
1: Uh, and then also in Europe, this is a very interesting story. And strangely enough, I've started to follow a new website, uh, mainly to keep up with news in Belgium, it's BrusselsTimes.com. But because the European Union is headquartered in Brussels, it's actually the single best source I've come across for news on what the European institutions are up to. And they cover all the tech stuff. So I ended up coming across a very important story about what's going on in one of the European courts. So there was a politician in Spain who is a racist. And the politician invited people to post comments on his Facebook page and then basically invited people to post racist stuff on his Facebook page and intentionally didn't delete it. And he was like, yeah, well, it's not my speech. Well, the court went, no, it's your Facebook page that you curate and you're choosing not to curate it. It is your speech. You, Your, your conviction for um, inciting hatred stands. So this so wasn't
0: you... the this was Facebook was responsible, the person no. who did the initial post? Yes. On, on a Facebook page? So the
1: person who runs a Facebook page has a responsibility for what's on that page, even oh. if the authors are not themselves. Now, what's not clear from the headline is that the court did explicitly say politicians have a higher duty than regular citizens. Hmm. So that, I don't think this rooting means that if you have a Facebook page and someone posts something nasty, you as a regular user are immediately responsible. But in this case, the politician was told to take it down didn't, left it up told for six by, weeks by, uh, by the Spanish court, but basically by the, the authorities in Spain said, you are responsible okay. for incitement to hatred. And he went, nope, not doing anything about it. They mm. then charged him in Spanish court. The Spanish court found him guilty and he appealed to the European court. And the European court had basically gone, nah, mate, can't be doing that. Just because you didn't type it does not mean you're not guilty.
0: Interesting. But that seems to be, so that has to do with a, um, a, Facebook page, and they were a political candidate. So Correct. it would be interesting. I mean, I would think that would apply then to, I don't know, a Facebook group called the No I'm well, not that a That would be much more
1: clear-cut, right? That would be much more clear-cut. So you, you as the owner of a Facebook group, if you invite people on to, to post stuff that's illegal in your country,
0: you would be responsible. I would, I mean, I would think so. But, I mean, it'd be pretty easy to get overrun by that. As you get yeah. bigger and bigger... It you know, does our actually. So you're right. It's small does, enough that I can manage it, but
1: yeah, it does sort of put a responsibility on the owners of large Facebook things in mm-hmm. Europe to manage their large Facebook things. Yeah, yeah. Be responsible okay. for your stuff online. Who who knew? <laughs> it was it was interesting, and it was strange to me that it came to me from the Brussels Times and didn't ping on any of the usual tech sites at all. I thought that was actually a very significant judgment. Yeah. And then the last thing did ping to me on some of my tech stuff. Google have published a very human-friendly page explaining how search works. And if you drill down, it actually has quite a bit of detail and even some nice videos that are very human-friendly. And look, it's obviously full of Google PR spin, right? They are talking up the good things and they're omitting... Some of the detail that may not be as comfortable, but it is all accurate. It is all true. It's just not, it's the truth, but not the whole truth. Maybe it's the best way to say it. But it is actually quite useful to understand what Google do and don't do, because I think a lot of people misunderstand Google's model. And while they put a very positive spin on it and go out of their way to tell you how it's in your favor that we do it this way, they do accurately describe what they do. And so I actually thought it was a very good resource for people who don't understand how the magic, you know, I use Google. Google are one of the most profitable companies in the world. What connects those two things?
0: Interesting. Interesting. That's that's good that they do that, though. I mean, that's it is good, good information that they that. to have. Yeah.
1: So, you know, my opinion of Google is they are not Facebook by any means. Um, they are much more open about their business model. I just don't like their business model, but they don't pretend it's not their business model
0: yeah yeah well i've always said that i respect companies who uh they might be uh you know have a greedy culture but i i'll I'll never forget negotiating with the uh the vp of finance for a company called parametric technology corporation and uh the guy sat down across from me and he said okay allison you have money i want more of it what do i have to do and it was it was glorious because then you can have an honest conversation. Everybody else comes in going, oh, we want to be partners, you know, and they, they they'd always put up the same graphic of a globe and two hands of different colors, shaking hands, you know, partnership across the world and all this crap. And it's like, no, you just want my money. That's all this is. And, and when the guy said that, i was like, OK, we can do business, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree entirely. And yeah, Google much more of that approach. This is what we do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah I just thought of strangely enough, it was actually because I, I I read it all. It's not it's not huge. I read it all and I watched the video, and I was like, yeah, this is good. um Nicely animated, got plenty of PR spin, but it's good. It's accurate. So I thought it was worth sharing.
0: Uh,
1: and then I do have a palate cleanser, which is again more of a recommendation than a palate cleanser. But you and I have both enjoyed various episodes of the Darknet Diaries podcast, and uh-huh. they reached 100 episodes. And to celebrate that, they have done a two-part story, which is 99 and 100, which tell a story from the point of view of a private investigator in New York, very much a first-person point of view, which turns out to connect together the Weinstein case and the NSO group. Yeah, the Pegasus people. Ooh. Ooh. So it's fascinating, as always, with Dark Knight Diaries, but it's a really fun story and it's spread over two episodes. So it's a, it's a nice deep dive into the very real world of, you know, the security industry, these grey hat companies.
0: The Dark Knight. Yeah,
1: so it's, I really, really, really enjoyed it. It's very well told.
0: Steve is uh, is a huge fan, a little bit bigger fan than I am of Darknet Diaries. I find it a little bit depressing. And they're always interesting stories, but the fact that they're true is what what hurts. You know, I'm okay with watching the fantasy ones, but the true ones get to me after a while. Uh, right now, he's got me watching uh, on the uh, Smithsonian Channel. He's got me watching uh, airline disasters, and they're they're fascinating, but they're all real. You know, they that really is, yeah. did happen. And they, they they go through the discovery process of how they figured out what happened, and so the the forensics is always interesting. But you you really like the ones where it opens up and it's interviewing somebody from the flight because then you know everybody <laughs> didn't die. But yes. if it starts with a picture of a baby booty in front of a carnal you know wreckage, this is going to be one of the harder ones. So uh,
1: it's yeah, still interesting. Are- there was a Discovery series that I used to love. I think it was called Aircraft Investigations. And the reason I liked it was because it always ended with, and now we have this rule, so this can never happen again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that is what this is. This is, okay, so why did the, the thrust reversers on this plane manage to turn uh, turn themselves on while in flight? Oh, that doesn't <laughs> sound good. No, no, and it turns out there, there's there's a failsafe for that. The weight of the plane has to be on the wheels for that to happen, but it did. And that, how did that happen? What? How many systems had to fail in I a failed. row for that it to think that that had happened? Failed sensors, all kinds of things. So yeah, that, that, really one, I, the, the I that one actually. The Airbus landed or not.
1: or not? There was an Airbus that crashed at the Paris Air Show very spectacularly because it was an air show. And it ended, so they were demonstrating the plane and they had the landing gear down because they were flying low. And so the plane thought it was landing, mm. but they were going to do a touch and run. But oh, the plane well. thought it was landing. <laughs> and so the driver assist didn't let the pilot apply full throttle. And they ended up as as the, you know, as one person put it, inhaling large amount of pine cones, which jet engines um, don't like.
0: Rough landing, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. Well, so much for the palate cleanser,
1: Bart. That was great. (laughs) I don't remember doing that. But anyway, here we are. Darknet Diaries, episodes 99 and 100. Absolutely fascinating. And no one dies.
0: (laughs) Okay, no one dies. That sounds good.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks, Bart. This was uh, fun. Yeah, it was, actually. It was mostly good news this month. And, you know, lots for us to get stuck into. Anyway, until next time, remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure.
0: Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at Allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You could go to podfeet.com slash Patreon like my hero Nick or podfeed.com slash PayPal if you want to do a one-time donation. You can join our conversation in Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack or podfeed.com slash Facebook. Now remember, there's no live show on the 12th. But we'll be back on the 19th, and you can join us by heading over to podfeet.com live, like Seamus did this week on Saturday, on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time, and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nosilla Castaways. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.